Listener Production. Hello, Antoinette Latouf here with the Weekend Briefing. And today I'm bringing you a spicy chat. And look, I don't really know what your spice tolerance is. Maybe you're a hot wings type of person, or I don't know, maybe just a tiny sprinkle of pepper on your steak and you go bright red. Anyway, I digress because we're not talking about food today. We're talking to broadcaster Josh Sepps, who recently left the ABC, but not before telling his audience that he was too spicy for the public broadcaster. Now he's taking all of that flavour to the stage and touring. So a little more about Josh. He's had a really impressive career. He was the host of Australian Idol Backstage. He's also the former host of Brink, and that's an American TV series which examined breakthroughs in science and technology and discovery. He's hosted Weekend Breakfast on the ABC. And he's also the host of popular podcast Uncomfortable Conversations, We're going to explore the man behind the microphone and the sometimes awkward but often essential conversations he really revels in having. I've always loved chatting to Josh. We are able to find common ground and, when necessary, disagree, but we do it respectfully. I really hope you enjoy this chat as much as I did. Josh, welcome to the Weekend Briefing. So you recently left the ABC. How is life after the ABC? And I'm asking for a friend. Wait, you you didn't just wait. You have to wait until I say thank you. If you say welcome to the show, then I have to go, uh, thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here, Antoinette. I'm trying to do the other side of the microphone thing, like being a guest now instead of being a presenter. And and coaching me. Coaching, yeah, coaching you. Okay, so let's try try it again. I mean, I'm trying again. We'll just say hello again. Do you want to do it again? No, no, no. I mean, this is part of the show. Just just, yeah. Oh, you want me to ask again? Yeah, yeah. Welcome to the briefing, Josh. I'm very glad to be here, Antoinette. It is a great pleasure to be a guest on this side of the microphone. Hello today. Good morning. Afternoon. How is life after? (laughs) How am I doing so far? Um, After the ABC. It's great. It's great. Mm -hmm. Who wouldn't want to not have a job? Yeah, okay. You know, it's not having a job is fabulous. I still, they still pay me money for my podcast. Yeah, great. But I mean, but I have lots of people who listen. And since I left the ABC, I have even more people who listen and even more people who pay me. So why would you not want to, like, I feel like I've got a, like a weight has lifted off my shoulders and I've emerged some kind of, from some kind of a fugue state or a fever dream where I've been in this system where, which has its own internal logic and has its own kind of hierarchy and pecking order and way yes. of doing things. Yeah. And it's highly, you know, bureaucratized. It is a big organization. And then you exit it and you go, why was I a widget? Yeah. Like, what was the point of being a widget? Well, I'm glad you're widget free. I'm widget free. You did say you were too spicy for public broadcasting. And what does that mean? Because nobody really likes bland tofu. No, that's true. It's really hard. I mean, as I suspect you know something about, it's hard. I empathise with the position of the public broadcaster. Like, they do have to be credible and they do have to be impartial and they do have to be unbiased and perceived to have no skin in any controversial game. At the same time, nobody's going to consume content that's milk toast and anodyne and without sparkle and personality. Mm. So how do you create 
personality and individuality and authenticity and kind of creativity and a little bit of pizzazz and a kind of a rambunctious place where there are lots of voices all having interesting conversations, if you're so cautious that you are you know, operating from a place of risk aversion and and cautiousness all the time. And I don't know. I mean, I'm glad that I'm not running the place. Yeah, um, but it's, a, it, it's it, a tough gig. It got to a point at which yeah. I was like, I'm not, I, I'm not the person that they want me to be. And I'm and to do the things that would be required of me to mm. be that person would be corrosive to my soul and corrupting to my integrity. So, why? And so you were here, and I want to continue um, speaking on the topic of flavoursome because you changed your name from Josh Zepps to Josh Zepps. <laughs> I never changed my name. When you I changed moved, your name back. Yes, when I moved to the United States, uh, I spent, for people who don't know, I spent most of my professional yes. life, most of my adult life in New York City. When I, um, I did communications and journalism and that sort of stuff here, I was working on radio stations as, uh, and it, like I was good at doing impersonations and writing comedy. So I was doing a lot of satirical comedy. I worked for Mike Carlton's show when he was on the drive show on 2UE and then moved with him to breakfast and I would impersonate John Howard and Kim Beasley and Alexander Downer. And while I was doing that, I thought I really want to work in New York City. Like that was my sort of aspiration. There were just yeah. so many more opportunities in broadcasting there than there are in a medium-sized market like, like Australia. And when I got to New York and I got an agent and I started booking jobs and I started working, uh, you know, in television, it just got so annoying. People saying, oh, what is that last name? What is that? Schwaps? What is it? Spaps? <laughs> How do you say it? Shaps? Where's it from? What's Shpaps? And like, <laughs> I, I mean, it's like it just becomes this b- drum beat, this backdrop, because yeah. my name is spelled S Z. E-P-S. Yes. So people go into the sh, they go into the s, they go into, I mean, and I was like, okay, for the purposes of showbiz in America, I'm just going to spell it phonetically because I don't know how it actually was spelled because my grandparents were penniless Jewish refugees who were fleeing the Nazis across Europe. They just just made up the spelling. Well, yeah. I mean, how many opportunities were there for someone who was writing in a ledger at a port where they were boarding a refugee boat to misspell, to put the Z and the S around the wrong way or something. So I was like, you know, we live in an English-speaking country now. We can just spell it in an anglicised way. And then I came back to Australia and I was like, no, I I mean, I don't, why why not just, I'm not going to, formally change my name on paperwork so now I can just be I feel like it was more it's more welcoming I feel like we're more chilled out in Australia and less so you, you didn't have to you heritage. never actually changed the never changed it legally you, it was always oh, just a showbiz a showbiz thing, thing. but yeah. we're seeing I mean there are a few other people who are reverting back to their names with which shows closer cultural ties yeah um, do, like is that important to you to I guess so. Honestly, it was more of a pragmatic thing than a a, like, I'm rediscovering my roots of like ancient heritage. It was more like, this is a weird name that has been uh, uh, spat out of the the flotsam and jetsam of history and has been churned around in a lot of uh, washing machines to mix metaphors (laughs) over the past hundred years. So uh, why why are we adhering to any particular spelling of it? It wasn't like, I'm going to go back to the homeland and spell things as the ancients did. And I want to talk about your uncomfortable conversations because I've been on your podcast and I really enjoy listening to your podcast. You often describe yourself as a, you know, a, a contrarian or, or a devil's advocate. It, some other people may be familiar with that expression. How would you describe what a contrarian is? Someone who thinks there's value in teasing out why people think the way that they do in 
poking holes in things where they can, in trying to um, steel man other people's arguments, which is sort of the opposite of straw manning them, in other words. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, take the strongest version of a point that you disagree with and still try to... uh, try to attack it or dissect it, um, analyse, you know, sort of be ruthlessly honest about analysing your own preconceptions mm. and biases and trying to poke holes in them. Um, I think contrarianism is basically a bit of a um, an attempt to arrive at things from a blank slate or from the way that an alien might perceive them if they were just parachuted down to earth in order to free yourself of the shackles of cultural baggage, of bias, of prejudice, of whatever other things might be clouding your reason so that you can sort of play in the in the mm. in the sandpit of reaching a higher truth. And it's really interesting you talk about acknowledging your bias and challenging your beliefs. I kind of hate the discussion around journalism. It's like we're just completely biased and objective. Like we strive to be and then editorial checks and balances and that's why you might have an editor or somebody else look over your work. But do you believe it's a bit of a farce to think that we can do journalism? Objectively, I mean, I'm torn. I don't subscribe to what I think is a popular um, Gen Z or maybe younger millennial attitude that um, there is no such thing as objective truth and there's no point in... And that we sort of have to be morally or culturally relativistic about, mm. about things. And because no one is objective, that means that uh, the quest for objectivity is just a veiled way for existing power structures to mm. enact themselves. Like, there can be this narrative that, um, you know, white patriarchal straight males with power and money have invented an artifice called science and reason and objectivity as a way of suppressing traditionally marginalised communities. And, you know, there may be truth, some truth in that. It doesn't mean that you throw the baby out with the bathwater. It doesn't mean that there isn't utility in striving towards the greatest amount of objectivity as you can muster or that there isn't a real truth out there about Mm. what's going on or even a real morality out there about the way that we ought to treat each other or even a a real sort of preferable society to another. Like I'm quite... (laughs) I'm quite a Western chauvinist when it comes to being unruffled about saying that, you know, a lot of younger people will find it unseemly to say that, you know, the way that some conservative Muslim community, for example, might structure its affairs is inferior to Western liberal democratic uh, cultures. I don't have such compunctions. I think the way the Taliban runs their society, keeping women inside cloth bags and preventing girls from educating themselves is like objectively worse by a number of, on a number of metrics to um, aspiring towards an egalitarian society mm. with equal opportunity for everybody. I'm not backwards about saying that and I'm not backwards about saying that there are objective things that we should be striving towards reporting in the world. But as I've said before, you you don't want it to become anodyne and you don't want it to become a fig leaf for your own bias, you know, inside a power system that sort of favours you and your kind. So it's a delicate balance. I mean, it's interesting, up until really the past year or so, I haven't called myself a journalist. I've been leery about taking on that moniker Mm. for the reason that you're pointing to, which is I really think... It's a bit like saying that you're an actor. Like my dad was an actor. Well, he's he's still alive, but um, he's not in a position to be acting. Um, I think in order to call yourself an actor, you have to be able to play King Lear eight shows a week and be like screaming and railing at the heavens and crying in every show. That's an actor to me. I feel like it's pretense. What's the journalism equivalent? The journalism equivalent of that is like being an investigative reporter. 
like you know, having a, your contacts, working in a working, newsroom. Working yeah, in the newsroom. Exactly. And I think doing the I hard think, yards. I've never you, done that. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a talker. I'm a yeah. thinker. I'm an armchair yeah. philosopher. I'm a conversationalist. What mm. I'm good at is is breaking down big ideas in ways that people will understand. Mm. And teasing out of people interesting things about themselves and insights about the world. Yeah. I'm with you on always, I think we should strive for objectivity and there, and strive for the truth. And in many situations, we can get close to a universal truth. Um, what I try and do is just acknowledge my biases. You know, And sometimes if I have an interview with someone, I'll say to my producers, I personally think this guy's a f- quit or she, you know, so can you help me like look at my questions and is it clear that I think this person is a f- quit or mm. I think this policy is a flop, a complete flop. Yeah. What do you think about just putting it on the table. I love or having it. Having a I mean, conversation I love it. I, with I, I, yourself look, and going, look, I think I might not be fair here. Help me out. I mean, I think it depends what we're talking about, right? Yeah. So if you're talking about, for example, you know, political reporting or crime reporting or corruption investigations or something, you're talking about hard news. You know, you're yes. talking about the 7.30 report on the ABC. You're yes. talking about current affairs news shows. That will have a different standard. I think Absolutely. there should be the illusion and the pretense of objectivity there and I should never know whether the newsreader of the nightly news bulletin it sways one way or another politically. Yes. Then there's this then there's this interim space in which people like you and I inhabit. Which and that's is, a growing space. That's I think that's Yeah, we're the... doing the practice of journalism. Mm. You know, we are I- interested in um in enhancing the, the the you know the community's capacity to understand itself and to understand what's going on in the world. And I'm on your side in in that one. I mean, you know, you and I just disagree about a lot of things including Palestine and and Israel and but as I said, uh, you, when you have said that before, but I want to know what it is we disagree on. What do we disagree on there? Oh, it's a matter of emphasis, I think, probably. But let me just finish. We can get okay, to that. We'll but get let me just that. finish yeah. that point, yeah. which is I've always felt that in, um, you know, when you're doing like a talk show or, a, you know, uh, something which is not hard reporting, uh, yeah. then it's it's less important to present a pretense of ob- objectivity than it is to be committed to the principle of fairness. I agree. Don't but, pretend to me that you don't have opinions. We all know that you do. Yes. But be fair. And I was always, I always took that attitude of like, mm. it shouldn't matter that you know, the audience might be aware that I'm not a complete blank slate as long as they always find me scrupulously fair and free of bullshit when I'm, you know, talking to my opponents. And willing to listen. Yeah. And I think that's, it's a difficult, it can be a difficult balancing act um, because people want you to dip into commentary and they turn to you for commentary. Mm. um, But then it's like, oh, too much comment. Um, Yeah. You know, I I just feel like legacy institutions, um, particularly newsrooms, are struggling as they're, journalists or presenters become personalities. And I hate that kind of social media personality <laughs> thing, but it's like, well, you're hired for one thing. Well, and I also think there's a, yes, and there's there's a misunderstanding sometimes about what is useful in groping towards truths as a community or as a demos. Like, it is important to do the objective fact thing, yeah. but it's also important to create a sphere in which there's a big, boisterous chaotic cacophony of different voices who are all trying to struggle towards a higher form of enlightenment. Like, I'm very much a kind of free speecher in that regard. Mm. Like, if I'm ever faced with the option of curtailing speech because, I mean, you know, the pandemic was a good example, uh, the voice referendum was another good example. When we have these hot-button issues where we know that there's a lot of treading on eggshells and it's very easy to accidentally trigger a tripwire and say the mm. wrong thing and you're going to get hounded by it. You know, we could think of the Me Too movement, you could think of transgender issues, you know, Indigenous issues, race. Then there can be a tendency for 
people to just want to shut up and to sort of pucker up a little bit yeah. and try to enforce a kind of conformism. On the left, that can come across as a, as a slightly smug sort of social justice conformism where you're very tut-tutty and you're very sort of showy about, oh, well, we're going to start this mm. Zoom meeting with a bunch of middle-aged white women by doing an acknowledgement of country to prove to each other how good our bona fides are about not being racists. But how much does that actually achieve for Indigenous people? I don't know. We can ask First Nations people about how much mm. they care about non-Indigenous people doing a welcome to country on a Zoom call uh, for an HR meeting. Um, but so that that shows up that way on the left. And then on the right, you can get these kind kind of, you know, extremely offensive sort of stuff the system type of Elon Musky, Trumpy, alt-righty spaces. Where well, they're like, we should ban all acknowledgement of well, countries. Yeah, and they, kind with of, that and they kind of have their own conformism and their own stupidity yeah. and their own groupthink. And I think if we're going to survive the 21st century, I mean, I really think the stakes are that high. We have to find ways of bridging yes. uh, the conversation between people who think that they disagree with each other find some of the common ground and be a bit brave mm. about having conversations and talking about things in ways that might get us shot down or that might trigger the mob to come for us on social media or that might get yeah. us fired. There is a spectrum, though, of people being too afraid to talk and walking on eggshells, don't want to say the wrong thing, so they just don't say anything at all, so they stick to their echo chambers. And then at the other end, there you can raise some legitimate questions about do some views still need airing? Do we still need in the interests of balance and having a conversation, for example, talking about whether vaccines cause autism or things that have been so wildly disproven or things that are so dangerous? Do we still, you know, do you, are there well, some issues or something where you, you, where you draw you, the line? Um, no, not really. Okay. Uh, the, the line would be that you push back against that point of view yet again, as you have done yes. a million times. Yeah. But if the, solu- if the proposed solution is that you ban that, point of view or that you like use the the force of it's government not, to not, suppress it. Well not ban it, but you, you have you have a choice whether you platform it. Yeah, I would not platform it. Yeah, yes, yes. There are absolutely there are some things where you're just like, you know, I'm not having that conversation yes, for the nine yeah. hundredth time. No, that's right. Know? I mean, yeah. I would never do a podcast episode about vaccines and autism. I yes. would never do a podcast episode uh, about climate denial. I would right. never do a podcast so episode yeah. about you know gassing the Jews, and I would yeah. never do a podcast. So there episode are some things that are just so inherently terrorists. It's, it's so, so many things that are just so not inherently objectively. Well, well, they're not interesting. I mean, they're so they're stupid. They're not. Yes. There's no. There is no there there. Right. Yeah. Now, if there was a wide phenomenon of people believing. Uh, a, a piece of nonsense and I wanted to debunk that, then there would be sure. utility in, in wrestling through... A public and in, interest. And maybe hearing from them and, you know, yeah. so maybe they would, you would air it in the context of trying to push back on it a little bit. I mean, I sort of went viral the last time I was on Joe Rogan's show mm. where I've done his show seven times and there was this brief moment where he was spouting some anti-vax nonsense and I called him out on it and people rarely call out Joe on his own yeah. show because he's but regarded he also as responded the godfather. Well, well to it. I mean, he's a great guy. Really, I think, you know, you can question whether he's a force for good or bad in the world, but as a human being, as a person of character, he has a great he has great character and he's a stand-up guy and he was willing to cop that he was wrong on, mm. on that. Um, and it had to do with the, whether or not uh, vaccines cause uh, heart inflammation mm-hmm. at higher rates than COVID itself does, right? This was one of an anti-vax uh, thing that had been going on around. So talking about that and discussing it, airing it, I don't think that's a problem. 
even if there is a risk that some people who haven't heard that claim will now hear that claim and but, might go down the rabbit particularly hole. Particularly at that time it was relevant because a lot of people were believing that and misinformation yeah. was rife. Yeah, and, and yeah. like, I mean, I wrote a piece for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age um, towards the end of the of the lockdowns in Australia saying, can we have a sane conversation about human rights and lockdowns? And that was an unpopular position to be taking at that time. We were still in a situation where, you know, I spoke to a woman on my ABC radio show who had flown with her family and young kids for the first time since the beginning of the pandemic from Melbourne to Adelaide. She arrived in South Australia, one person on her Virgin flight tested positive, and she was collapsed into this Kafka-esque nightmare of being locked up at the airport, her kids being, you know, locked up for eight hours, then being transported by South Australian police to a hotel where they were in quarantine for three days. And after she complained, they agreed that she could be deposited back into Victoria. So her family in this nightmarish week uh, were finally, were not allowed to be free in South Australia, but were driven under police escort to the Victorian border and dumped into Victoria across the border where their kids saw sunlight for the first time in five days or something. Now, that sort of thing didn't get a lot of criticism at the time because there was an elite consensus mm. that this is a devastating pandemic and Which we need to sort of obey, you know, we, we all need to do our weight and, and you know, we, we need to pull our weight and sort of do our bit and not be Joe Rogan-esque contrarians who are upsetting mm. the apple cart and maybe undermining public health. Well, stuff that. I know. I mean, in now hindsight, that we, now that's that ridiculous. We look back, because there was one instance where my sister-in-law, heavily pregnant, was in ICU. Um, she had COVID. She was very sick. My brother, because he was a close contact, was in hotel quarantine because they were living with my parents. My parents had contracted it. They were very sick, um, you know, being boomers. We weren't allowed to go in. There was a two-year-old who my parents who were sick were looking after, but we couldn't go in and look after the help take the toddler because then she would... Exp- this ridiculous situation where we have a pregnant woman in ICU that I try and go and drop some things off to and like, nope, you can't bring anything in. I'm like, well, she's already got COVID. What am I going to bring in? I'm just trying to give her... They the wouldn't bubonic take it. plague, Antoinette. I was like, I'm you just trying to bring her some sweets SARS. and some underwear and some, some trash magazines. And then my brother... <laughs> is in a hotel, not living with my parents, and there's a toddler. And now that I look back, I'm like, how did we think that that was okay? Yeah, I know. And the th- <laughs> and my point about free speech and about yeah. are there things that you shouldn't get an airing is basically it's very hard to know when you're inside the soup. Yes. You know, it's like the joke about the fish, the young fish who are swimming along and a bigger fish, an older fish, swims past and says, how's the water today, boys? And as the old fish swims away, one of the younger fish turns to the other one and goes, what's water? When you're in the water, you don't see the water. Yeah. Like we're all inside a soup of cultural norms. And I guess coming back to what is contrarianism, it is an attempt to bust out of those norms and to ask from first principles, why are we doing what we're doing? Yeah. Is it still serving us? Is there a better way to think about things? And so I would always err on the side of air the largest possible number of opinions and hash it out in the public square because that's the only way that Mm. you find out in the long run what is true and what is not. I want to go back to Gaza and Palestine and Israel. Um, so you have, and I think you've, you know, you've said it publicly before, not in an antagonistic way, but just that pointing out that, you know, you and I, we know each other, we often respect the, the way we contest ideas, but that we don't agree on this issue. What do you think we don't agree on? 
Um, it may be just be a matter of emphasis. Yeah. Uh, I, I have a, a full, uh, an entire hour and 45-minute solo monologue from early December if people are interested in my thoughts yes. about what's going on in Israel and Gaza at the moment, uh, which is called Reflections. And does on it a... still hold now? Because obviously a couple... Well, I haven't listened back to it, but yeah. I'm sure it does yeah, because okay. it's basically about anti-Semitism and uh, holding ourselves together as a society, as mm-hmm. a demos in Australia. Um, it's called Reflections on a Collapsing Conversation mm-hmm. and it... I was sort of motivated to talk about it in light of the fact that there were a lot of well-meaning, mostly mummy bloggers and influencers on Instagram uh, talking about... I know, I know those mummy bloggers have mm. taken in, you know, taken issue with being referred to a mum as mummy bloggers simply because they have mums. Is that a way to re- like reduce or ridicule their uh, status or intellectual status? No, it's is? not. It's because most of their content is about being mothers. Right. These particular people. Okay. There are a few who aren't. Yes. Like Clementine Ford is not. Doesn't yes. is that's not her persona. So I wouldn't necessarily. I would probably carve her out. But there are people who earn who make a living being like mums and getting yes. sponsors and right. brands to pay them for the fact that they're mums. You know, one of them was drawing links between. Uh, how Frank Lowy, one of Australia's richest men, pays money to the federal government and now the federal government is giving money and, you know, doing Israel's bidding. So she's not suggesting that, um, you know, Jews control Australian foreign policy, but she's just pointing out that Jews give a lot of money to government and then the government does what Jews want, so make of that what you will. Um, You know, that's a libel that goes back thousands of years, uh, that Jews are puppet masters. Um, You know, there's been a lot of other talk about... Um, I guess it's a it's a lack of context for me. It's um, but that's but, them. What what about me? You said that we have disagreed because um, I don't think we I don't think we do. I guess I felt there was a that the instant, and I mean I didn't follow your work closely, but the instant October seventh happened, mm. there was a sudden outpouring of sympathy for Palestinians. There was not a lot of, there were no rallies about Israel, really. I mean, the powers that be tried to make that happen, like they put up an Israeli flag on the Opera House or something, but the bulk of protests were about the tragedy of Palestine. I think you and I both agree that... Um, I think we both, we both absolutely That the occupation condemn, is wrong. Yeah, uh, but I we think, condemn the attacks and the yes. loss of 1,200 lives and the ongoing hostages. I think 150 remain in Gaza. Yeah. We're on the same page as, as I mean, that. I guess spending a lot of time, like, trying to pass whether or not protesters said gas the Jews is, to me, a complete distraction. Like, why why bother wasting time on that? We, we know that some people want to gas the Jews. We know that some... But I think it's... We know that for, Hamas for, and for, other extremists want to kill Jews. Yeah, but, I mean, they, they may well, but it's unfair, particularly since there were Jewish peace protesters there and it was an overwhelmingly peaceful protest to have a body, and I don't... I know they don't represent... Um, the AJA don't represent um, the Jewish population to inflame fear, to also start off that video with hundreds of Muslims. They weren't hundreds of Muslims. They were of all stripes to loop what university, RMIT University found was to loop and duplicate audio. So not only to miscaption, to loop and duplicate, to suggest that all of the people there said this heinous thing, which they didn't say. Well, I mean, there were a lot of people there who say that it was said. People, there are a lot of people lying if it wasn't said at all. Well, that's the police investigation and all the audio I have seen and but what, independent I'm, just, well, I'm curious about why this is the most interesting thing. Like, so there's a global conflagration. We've got an irreconcilable conflict between two peoples, both of whom have legitimate claims to this land. Hmm. Um, 
there's so much to wrestle with. Since October 7th, there, you know, there are a lot of Jewish school kids who aren't wearing their uniforms to school. They're afraid yeah. of of attacks. There's a, there is a sense that the community is besieged. So, so to spend it, it, a lot of time going, well, yeah, but technically this person didn't actually say this thing that you're claiming that well, they say. There's, there's seems a, like a misallocation a of concern. Because at the same time as scaring the a spreading information if disinformation at worst which works as you know can be seen as to work as propaganda which gets reported across the world both increases anti-semitism and fear and increases islamophobia and fear there is also a legal difference if somebody did say that and po chanting it there are laws in which they should be prosecuted because that sort of hate speech that incites violence is abhorrent and shouldn't be allowed. And then off the back of that, the premier fast track changes to laws. So there were like several elements of public interest in Australia as divisions were growing here to get to the bottom of, hey, we don't need to add more fear and hate. And who did this to this videos, which has scared the bejesus out of an already besieged community and tainted another one as violently savage and wanting to gas people, which is awful. Right. But a lot of people believe that. I mean, but, a lot of people do but, like, think just, that the just, Jews should. I mean, just they, they, they may not who's think that. that who's well, that? I was yesterday. I was literally out in the western suburbs of Sydney, and I was uh, I was picking something up that I was buying. And there was a time where I had to spend like twelve minutes making awkward chit chat with the bloke who was out there. Who's just a like a you know um, he looked like an Arab Australian bloke. He could have been uh, you know South uh, European. And he and he's just talking about you know, um, you know Ukraine this and Putin that and what about bloody Gaza? I mean the Jews should never have been there in the first place. I mean just kick them all out. I say you know do yeah, what you have to do to get them out. I, so I understand that being... exists. Yes, of right? course. So, so why are we of... spending a lot of time going? Well, actually, technically, no, it only exists said, in this extent. You just said, extent, you just said that people extent. want Jews gas. That's different to you know what over there it's awkward. You know, no, I didn't. Say, I didn't say people want Jews gas. If I if you took that, then I misspoke. Yeah. I said people believe that, meaning that people believe that the Jews should not be there and that we should do whatever we need to do to get them out. And I think that's what gas the Jews is code for. I don't think, oh, I, th- I don't think anyone who says you know gas the Jews is literally talking about yeah you know what we should do we should build a new Auschwitz and we should herd mm. the Jews in. I think it's, I think it's a, I think it's a code. I think it's a code for they should never have been there in the first place. They're a colonialist project. Uh, they're a relic of uh, of empire, mm. and um, the place belongs to the Arabs. Always has, mm. always will be Palestinian land. Um, I think that's, yeah. Look, and even if that sentiment does exist, and I'm not going to dispute that it may among some, I think it is unfair to suggest that all of hundreds of Muslims chanted gas the Jews when they didn't. I think that is unfair. And I don't think it helps anybody. I don't think it helps social cohesion. I don't think it it just wouldn't be in the wake of like such a catastrophe, the thing that I would choose to devote my time investigating. Well, in an Australian context, short of being over there, talking about social cohesion and anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, all we can do is investigate policy, investigate government reaction and investigate what's happening in our communities. Yeah, I mean, my main concern is not to hunt down reasons why the other side is wrong, put it that way. My main concern is to try to bridge... But aren't you concerned that an organisation is potentially, intentionally disseminating information that is harmful to both communities? I mean, I think there's a lot of that going around, yeah. Yeah, I think the... It's harmful. put Put it this way, the contrarian thing that I would do would be to check my own side rather than attacking why the other side is well, I'm, spreading I, misinformation. You have more sympathy for the pro-Palestinian position than the pro-Israeli position. Fair to say. Yeah. If you're looking for a specific thing that, that, that we disagree on, I mean, probably something like the right of return, I assume, like the, the you know, whether, in other words, whether or not Israel has a right I, to I believe in a two-state continue solution. to exist yes, as a... I believe in a two-state solution. Yeah. I don't right. believe in the we need to eradicate 
you know, and that will, you know, many people disagree with me from pro-Palestinian communities or Arab or Muslim communities, but I believe in a two-state solution. I want to talk about your upcoming tour. Um, You're taking Uncomfortable Conversations live on the road. You'll be sharing a stage with Douglas Murray. He's a British author and commentator. He has been described as far right, even though that's something he disputes. Can you have really intellectually stimulating conversation with someone at an extreme end of the spectrum, irrespective of which end that is? Depends who they are. I mean, you could cert- you would certainly be able to have an interesting conversation with Karl Marx, I would imagine, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would be interesting. <laughs> if it was alive, I'd love to have him yeah. on stage. You can't have an interesting conversation with an ideologue, I think, who has made up their mind about everything in advance and isn't interested, inter- mm. isn't interested in wrestling with ideas. Um, Douglas is a fascinating guest precisely because he's so, like, sort of prickly and hard to pin down. Like, Mm. I mean, there's a lot that I will disagree with him about and there's a lot of things that he's flirted with that I will object to. But, you know, he's a ferocious thinker. I mean, he talk about pro-Israel. I mean, that's one thing that I'm sure will come up in the tour. Well, Douglas Murray, something that riled me up, um, he came to my attention last year because he wrote for The Australian um, and the title of the article is Sorry, But Can We Please Stop the Guilt Trips? Um, Australia has a choice, concede all failures of the Aboriginal people that they are directly due to settlers or at some point give itself a break. The English did nothing wrong, neither did any of you. Like I read that and I thought, why should I give a shit what a white English man who doesn't even live here have to say, especially about Indigenous people and how the rest of us Aussies should feel? Is that a question? Yeah. Like, why <laughs> should I question. give a shit? You, and don't, why? you shouldn't. You don't have to. You don't have to give a shit. But did, like, you, did you not read that and be like, I was just like, I didn't oh. see that. That's the first time hearing about oh, it. Oh, you've got to read that article because okay. I was like, I love Josh and I love that he's willing to have conversations with all sorts of people. But that is one conversation let's with just, one man. Let's just say Douglas and I would not be on the same page about uh, First Nations <laughs> rights in Australia. Conversa- I'm like, dude. Okay, cool. Well, yeah. It's always a pleasure chatting. It's such a pleasure. And it's never, I know it's uncomfortable conversation, but I'm never uncomfortable having a conversation with you. Let me make this point also about uncomfortable conversations for people who don't listen to the podcast and are just discovering it for the first time. The point is not that I make the guest uncomfortable and the point is not that I necessarily push back in ways that are uncomfortable. The point is, I mean, sometimes that's necessary, but the uncomfortable conversation is that we're having conversations about things and issues that make people uncomfortable, which are difficult to talk about in, in, you know, in ways without ruffling people's feathers. Yeah, and, and sometimes I'm having a conversation with someone who I agree with entirely and there's it's entirely comfortable, but we're talking about something that if you were saying it at a barbie, someone overhearing it might get offended. Yeah, and I think probably you and I are more comfortable sitting in the, some of these uncomfortable areas. Yeah, exactly, than the, than that's right. The, you know, when I say that you and I disagree about X, Y, Z, it may not be true that we do, but the point that I'm trying to make is that I think it's very important for us to construct a society and a culture in which the content of our beliefs is sort of irrelevant, but the way we conduct ourselves is relevant. Mm. The way we argue is relevant. Mm. The way we treat each other is relevant. Mm. So my beef with the mummy bloggers, for example, to call them that, is not so much about what they say. It's about that there's a persistent... um, set of tactics that are used, and these are used also on the other side. I'm not denying that, you know, there are community groups who, who go after other communities on the, that they feel are, they're opposed to. Mm. But what you might call cancel culture, in other words, instead of responding to the content of a person's beliefs, but trying to destroy them as a human being, trying to get them fired, trying well, to get I them have, blacklisted. Right, you know, yes. trying to get them... Uh, destroyed, essentially, and trying to remove their life opportunities, even in ways that are completely unrelated from the thing that you object to about them. I think that, I think we go down that path at tremendous peril. I think Mm. we should be enormously Mm. careful. 
about doing that. You know, attack my beliefs, attack my positions, criticize me all you want, but keep it within the sphere of ideas. Mm. So I'm happy and proud to include in my circle of colleagues and friends whom I respect, people who have wildly different opinions from me, and I want that to be the case. And I think that's... That's a credit to you because a lot of people increasingly are only surrounding themselves with people that nod furiously. Yeah, we're getting more tribal. Yeah. We're getting, and you know, social media is not helping. Mm. The, the fracturing of, of our media consumption is not helping. The, the algorithms aren't helping. The fact that we're being mm. fed things that are tailored to elicit a rise out of us that want to, to attract our attention, want to get us to click, want us to get us to comment, want to get us to share, and yeah. therefore are likely to either reinforce things that we already believe or demonize mm. people who we don't agree with. You know, like nuance and subtlety don't get a rise out of you. Yes. You don't share nuance and subtlety unless yeah. it's really, unless it's uncomfortable conversations, which is going gangbusters. <laughs> and clearly there's an appetite for it, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, well, you've yeah. just done your own conclusion. Okay, Such a pro. You. you fixed my intro. <laughs> you did your own conclusion. <laughs> I can be a guest as well as a presenter. Wow. So talented. I, I could do it. Thanks, Josh. Thank you, Antoinette. Josh Zepps. Check out his podcast, Uncomfortable Conversation, and his tour, which bears the same name, is with Douglas Murray. And there are a series of live shows in March right across the country. Grab some tickets on Ticketek. But that is it for this week. Thank you so much for being with us and tuning in. It is always a pleasure. And if you want more of the weekend briefing, you can find us on the Listener app. You can download the Listener app in the App Store and follow us there. Otherwise, follow, subscribe, wherever you get your podcasts from. And why not give us a rating and a review for this fabulous interview with Josh Sepps and FYR. You can rate and review every episode. I'll catch you next week, guys. Listener.